Hello, and welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you're enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. The focus of this podcast is on the interesting and creative people of Austin, Texas. As always, my intention is to have meaningful and in-depth conversations that I hope will be of value to you, the listener. They certainly are to me. I really love doing these interviews, and hopefully we can all figure out together how to better connect and support our local art communities and create opportunities and success for ourselves through conversations like these. You might have noticed, unlike many other podcasts, this one has no sponsors. For me, it's a passion project that I create and produce 100% on my own every week. Please consider helping to support me and my continued efforts by becoming a patron of mine. Go to austinarttalk.com and click on the support tab to learn more. And if you really love an episode and have a feeling it might benefit someone else, please share it with them. It might be exactly what they need to hear. Thanks to those who follow and interact with me on Instagram, at Austin Art Talk. That is by far my favorite social media platform. I post daily about local art events and try to support and share the work of previous podcast guests, along with other interesting people, art, and podcasts that I find which you might enjoy. On to the rest of the show. Sharon Bridgeforth is a writer, performing artist, arts educator, and director whose stories, poetry, experimental fiction, and plays aim to address aspects of social justice, feminism, gender issues, sexuality, race, ethnicity, cultural identity, religion, and spirituality. She calls it jazz. What a treat to be able to sit down with Sharon and talk about living as an artist. Such wisdom and grace and clarity. In the interview, we talk about Sharon's beginnings, and there is a big emphasis on the importance of relationships and financial stability. And most importantly, what is in the way that is keeping you from living with joy? Have a listen and share any feedback or thoughts you might have, and be sure to check out Sharon's writings and performances. Here is Sharon. Sharon, thanks for being on my podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I just met you last night at Algo, and you did a talk on living as an artist, and I was like, I gotta, I can't miss that. Uh, and you had so many wonderful things to say, and I was just like, I have to have you on the podcast. Even though you do live in LA, you did live here for many years, and I'm sure you feel very attached to the Austin art community. Absolutely. But I'm just wondering maybe just to, for those who might not be familiar with you, maybe how would you describe yourself thank and you. your work? Yeah, thank you. And thanks for coming last night. That was great yeah. having you there. Um, so my name is Sharon Bridgeforth. I am a writer and performing artist. I collaborate with actors, singers, dancers, and audiences to make work that for me explores and celebrates and puts forward African-American migration stories Mm. and then the histories that come out of that. The stories are um, very queer in their architecture. I'm I'm a lesbian, a queer-bodied lesbian. For me, it's very much also about these are my prayers. So I consider them ancestral blood memories. Um, I consider them things that I have deeply researched. I feel that I am using tools that my family uses to tell stories. And so that's why for me, collaboration with singers and dancers and, you know, actors and visual artists too actually are essential because the way that stories are told 
in my background and experience, um, there's always a lot of things happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. There's always music and dancing and laughing. And sometimes there's simultaneously praying and crying and, you know, and there's food and there's a call and response. And there is a layer of intention that is about release, transformation, remembering and passing on information. Mm. And so I can articulate that now, but I think even as a kid, even though I didn't have language for it because I loved watching the elders in my family, like my parents and the people older than them so much that I think I understood even then. I think that was part of what fascinated me. And so now as an artist, I'm primarily I'm a writer, um, but as a writer who's trying to hold space on the page for that and for the collaborations that are necessary to bring all of that to life fully, you know, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe touch on your origin story around like you're talking about this time growing up with this family. It sounds so joyful and intentional and wow. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm a child of the Great Migration. Um, the uh, African-American migrations, there were three um, that have been talked about in a particular way. Um, Isabel Wilkerson wrote the book for me about it called The Warmth of Other Sons. But anyway, I'm a child of the Great Migration. So my dad is from uh, Algiers, Louisiana, which is basically New Orleans. And my mom is from Memphis. Um, And my mom raised me. I grew up with a a single parent. But my dad, you know, like I'm part of that family too. And they were people that came in a self-determining way to make a better life for themselves and for their families. And as is documented in the warmth of other sons and other, you know, history accounts um, for the lives of people, black people leaving the South to go to other places, you know, there was brutal institutional structural racism that was pervasive and normalized in the places that they left and in the places they arrived. Mm. (laughs) And so I think that one of the things that I'm so, in retrospect, grateful for and so aware of is how joy was a choice that was transgressive and a action that was part of the culture, but it was part of the survival mechanism and part of what they were passing on and offering to us so that um, there were a lot of uh, shattered dreams, a lot of uh, trauma, a lot of the effects of, um, you know, pervasive racism, classism, all the other things. And there was rich culture and there was wealth amongst us in how we cared for each other and how we created extended family and then how we survived together. And so for me growing up in Los Angeles um, and being raised by my mom, you know, who was a single parent, most of her family was still in Memphis. And so we had some older family members, a few that were in LA, but LA is so very, very large. Even South Central LA 
is really huge. And so I grew up in South Central LA, but my mom had to work, you know, and, and so I ended up at a very young age being, you know, what they would call a latchkey kid, taking the bus to school by myself, like very independent and also a little unsupervised. (laughs) 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 But thankfully, you know, I loved to read. Mm. I was fascinated by the people or in the landscape around me and it was a time when we still took care of each other in a certain way in in our communities and um and I was I was just free in many many ways and so because I love to read I start I imagined that I could also write Mm. and so when I got around teenage years like uh probably junior high actually and also began to feel queer in my body. So of course, we didn't, I didn't have language for that. But when I started to also feel queer, and like, actually felt like something was wrong with me, because Mm -hmm. I, the way I was inside was not reflected anywhere around me in terms of gender and sexuality that I could name. So there's so much more language now, and so much more access now than it was then, because I'm 60. So we're talking about um, a while ago. And so I started writing. And I just wrote like it was like the way I could breathe. It was the way I could save my own life. It was the way I could survive and understand. And even if I didn't understand, it was the way I could imagine being okay. I kept those writings to myself till I was 30. (laughs) (laughs) And some of that was really good because I was free in my imagination. So Mm. I wrote in the way that language was around me which was very much like music Mm. so to me language was moving pictures and it was music and it was textured and layered with so many emotions and to me the even then like the living and the dead kind of coexisted partially because of the way stories were told so there was a great longing for home but even if they physically went back home, they couldn't ever return home because that home uh, would kill them, you know? So there there were all these things that for me was um, a part of language that I was free to play with and discover on my own since I was keeping it to myself. And I'm kind of glad I did. And and then eventually later I did go to school, uh, to college and I, Um, went to Cal State LA eventually it took me 10 years to graduate but I went to Cal State LA (laughs) and I studied creative writing Um, it was a special major I was very lucky Cal State LA is a working people school and um, the dean at that time was just awesome I just rolled up into her office and I said I want to be a writer and she said well let's make you a special major and she sat down with me and I essentially took every writing class that they had in all the various ways that writing shows up in college and I never found I think that was really great because I got kind of a base but the way that writing was taught whether it was for film or for theater or for fiction or nonfiction, it was not anything that I recognized as something that would be my voice yeah and so I just kind of did that and then just let it go but I kept writing Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I moved to Austin in 1989 
that I shared my work. And then when I shared it, I just, you know, fell in at the right time with the right people, with the right kind of encouragement and community. And, and once I shared it, then I understood what I was doing in a way that I didn't previously. You had some context. Yeah. Yeah. I thought I was a poet. Yeah. 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 I was like, well, I guess I must be a poet. Right. But when other folks, when I shared my work, they were like, Oh, we're going to, this is a one woman show. We're going to do this show. Mm. And I was like, Oh, that's what that is. Wow. (laughs) And then everything just kind of opened up from there. And then I was clear. But you weren't performing yet? Or? No. Uh-uh. Uh, my, it was word of mouth women's theater company. Raj Wall um, was the um, probably founder and definitely artistic director. And she read the, I had some handwritten things that I thought were poems and I sent them in. And she was the one that called and said, oh, this is a one woman show we're going to do. Um, Starla Benson, who is an African-American actor that now lives in the East Coast, but, you know, just an exquisite actor, um, did the the work. And they Mm. had a director. Her first name was Carol. I can't think of her last name. But just watching the director and the actor work with the text and then seeing it performed and being in the audience and kind of experiencing it as an audience member with other people... Mm. I understood how to make that music on stage. And then I and then after that I I started my own theater company and I just kept playing with the work and with collaborators and and growing in that way. And eventually I found my mentors and teachers, you know, who helped me. Yeah, I'm just wondering though what that experience must have been like that first performance or whatever when you're like, oh, those are my words and yeah. they're like alive and someone else. Yeah. What was that like? It was life-changing. It was unbelievable. It was uh I had such a sense of gratitude that it was like unexpressible, you know? Mm. And it was so deeply clarifying because to see the work performed uh, in such an exquisite way, and Starla really was is a incredible actor, and she knew what to do with that language, with that music, mm. right? And she knew those people that I was writing about, and so it just made everything clear mm. for me, and so it really shifted my entire life and wow. trajectory. Yeah, and it's so amazing it was, how it was people, big. It's amazing how you know, like the the person at the college or whoever, it's like these single people can make such a huge difference in your life. Like if that woman hadn't said, hell, let's create a degree program for you. Yeah. Who knows what might have happened? Exactly. 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 And Raj. People hadn't encouraged you to get your writings out. Yeah. And it just affirms for me how important our daily actions are. You know, Mm. how important it is to see each other and to, make space for each other and to bring each other along, you know, cause over and over and over again, people did that for me. 
that really makes me think of what you said last night as someone had asked you, I don't remember exactly how they said it, what the most important thing was in an artist's life. And mm-hmm. you said relationships. And yeah. that's exactly what you're talking about. I feel like, and everything, I feel like everything else you talked about last night all came back to relationships somehow or another. Absolutely. Could you maybe expand on that a little yeah. bit, what you said last night about relationships? Yeah, yeah. I feel, and for me, it starts with family and this sense of people sacrificing for you. So they were determined for themselves, but also for me and for the rest of us that we were not going to live in the circumstances that they grew up in, which were horrific. They were also awesome and wonderful, you know, and creative and beautiful and joyous. But in the conditions of the South with that limiting, dangerous, racist structure, They sacrificed everything to try to make something different. And the people that migrated quickly found that there was as much racism in the other places Mm. as there was in the South. But it was shaped in a way that did allow for nuances of different kinds of freedom and, um, you know, opportunity. And so, but that sense that we function as a we, we collectively are responsible for each other and we try to pull and move each other forward was something I was born into. And I Mm. understood at a young age what a privilege it it was to have that. Um, Where do you think that came from? That just like that way of coping and transgressing in such a positive and joyful way. Like where did that come from? Well, I think it's part of our African-American culture. It's how we have survived I feel that where that comes from is partially culture, traditions, things that were passed on, and a legacy of not only surviving, but thriving, innovating, and transgressing unimaginably cruel circumstances. So I think we have always, as African American people, been able to not just survive, but thrive, innovate, transgress, transform, survive. And then some of that is, I think, a spiritual understanding of grace, of ancestral prayers, of dreams, hopes, and desires for us collectively because of the commitment to those coming behind us. And so, you know, my family just simply did what we all do, you know, And so I think that's part of what I structure into the architecture of my work. So I tend to, Dr. Omi Oshun Joniel Jones, who's also my wife now, but uh, she moved here from Chicago. Well, she may have been somewhere east when she moved here. She's from Chicago, but uh, she moved here in 89 and has taught at the University of Texas at Austin since then and is currently in the Black Studies Department there. Um, And her area of focus is African and African-American performance uh, practices. And she has written a book called Theatrical Jazz, Performance Ashe and the Power of the Present Moment. So in her book, she really breaks down all of this. Mm. But essentially in my work, I think in the architecture of it, 
I'm working with blues as kind of like the heart language of the pieces. So blue stories that are very funny and also contain a certain kind of language and tone and sensibility and serve to bring laughter and healing and gathering into the work, the world of the pieces along with language that in its sensibilities and in how it's to be delivered in its timing is more like a prayer, but not prayer in the Christian sense, but prayer as in people on the other side are also with us telling us things. So for me, using the page to hold shifts in timing, in how words like what kinds of words or how words are delivered help to move the music of it along. And so, uh, and then usually there are also things that are kind of hard that happen within the piece. Mm -hmm. And like I said, it's also very queer. But using all of that architecture as a place for actors, singers, and dancers to collaborate and put their bodies, their voices, their artistry inside of it and then invite the audience to be witness participants. So that means that call and response is invited in how we use the room and how the room is shaped and what people walk into from the beginning. So that, so not doing the fourth wall, not doing proscenium as much as possible, yeah. but creating spaces where your attention and your choices are impactful in the experience and the call and response aspect is one of it. Sometimes we literally bring people up to dance or do text or do different things with us. But, you know, just kind of recreating that whole thing, uh, the usness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like you did that last night too. And I feel like, I don't know that I had seen it done exactly like this. I mean, normally if you go to a discussion or an artist talk, you know, here's the person that's being interviewed, they answer all the questions and then it's over. But I feel like, it was really nice how you you opened it up to like, okay, there's obviously other wisdom here in this room that people could share about this subject. Like who else has something else to say? You know what I mean? I just thought that was really nice. I don't know. I, I don't know why that struck me as being so odd mm-hmm. or not odd, but just different. But uh, I really appreciated that, that yeah. you, it wasn't all about what you had to say. It was, uh, it was a kind of a collaboration and like what is living as an artist about? And we all... Maybe we're all artists in our own way and we're all have some thoughts about that. I just thought that was nice. But. Yeah. And I think having been when I had, I've been self-employed since 98, but having been a community organizer, I have been trained by artists that use art as a vehicle for social justice and use art as a way to, to activate you know, and get people to access services or to come to things. What I have witnessed and been taught to make space for, and therefore what I expect is the brilliance that's always present amongst us. So I feel like we all always have something to offer. We're not often invited. Yeah. It's it's often one-sided. isn't it? Yeah. 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 And so, so I'm just as curious you know, I'm I'm actually really curious about what people know, you know, yeah. and because I need it too, you know, yeah, and yeah. I also know that there's so much that I don't know and that I'm still reaching for. 
And so I try to always create the circle, uh, mm. you know, so that it's circular. Even if I am sharing primarily, I want the circle to happen so that we can learn from each other and really have an opportunity to see each other and invite each other along together. Yeah. Which takes us right back to the relationship. Yes, yes, yes. I went far away from that, but exactly, it does, it does. Exactly, yeah. Did you have any more thoughts about relationship, the role of relationship in an artist's life? Yeah, I do. Um, So I'm speaking in retrospect, and what I can clearly see, and what I'm so grateful for, and what I am glad that I was taught to do all along, uh, and now I just really relish, is the tending to the nurturing of the creating and building of long-term ongoing relationships. And so there are artists that we've kind of grown up together, but we might be different ages. You know what I mean? So it's not like older to younger, but maybe coming up at the same time period that we've been working together and our peers because of the time period and some of the mentorship that we had. So a lot of that, all of that for me happened here in Austin. So I lived here from 89. I really actually moved in 2007, but I come so often and I'm really just so still, this is one of my homes. So yeah. there's a way that I haven't moved, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> I <yeah>. moved. <laughs> um so especially in the 90s when Vicki Boone and, you know, Jason Phelps and Marjorie Siegel and so many other people started and maintained Frontier at Hyde Park Theater. Mm-hmm. And they made that a space to support emerging artists and new work. And because of the work that they did, I was able to meet Daniel Alexander Jones, who's like my art brother, Lori Carlos, who's my mentor, Florinda Bryant, who is one of my art children, who was in my first show at Frontera that Lori directed. You know, so it's like all that there were so many places that we were able to root ourselves in in the 90s and really tend and develop these artistic relationships. So from Lori, who would be like, you know, the mentor to me and Daniel, who kind of eventually, you know, grew up to the younger artists who are now grown and training other artists and working in community and doing their own work, like Zell Miller III was with that crew, Dashade Moonbeam, mm-hmm. Florinda Bryant. There's a lot of artists that came up with us in that time and that we worked together and stayed in family together. And we have done things in other cities together. Uh, We've done work in Minneapolis. And, you know, I return here. So and Daniel has returned here a lot, too. And Lori returned. Lori passed a couple of years ago. But, you know, before she died, she returned here a lot, too. Mm -hmm. So these circles of relationships. And so like Florinda and Zale knew my daughter, who's now an adult when she was just a child. And now she's an adult and Florinda's child is now about to graduate from high school. So my daughter saw this young man who's a technician, you know, he's in the arts as a technician. He's also an incredible actor who ended up in one of Daniel's shows at Salvage Vanguard before it was taken from us. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so that's one example of relationships. And I think we decided to make family with each other. And in doing that, we helped each other mature in our work and we helped each other expand. And then there's another way for me that relationships have been essential. 
And that is in the academic world. So, so Omi, Dr. Jones, was really the first one to bring my work into academia. And she exposed my work to other academics. And so people like E. Patrick Johnson, who is at Northwestern, people like Matt Richards, who's teaching here now, like all these people actually all over the country are now teaching my work. But that was because Omi taught my work and took it to conferences and wrote about it. And she eventually ended up publishing this book, which she used its her ethnographic experiences as a performer and dramaturg and producer of work. Uh, she created a series at UT Austin for the cent- the John L. Wolffield Center for African and African American Studies uh, before it was a department. Um, she called it the Performing Blackness Series. So she produced me and Daniel and Lori, Robbie McCulley. She produced Florinda's work. Uh, so many artists came through there. And then she wrote about it. And so all of that, you know, a lot of her students and the other academics, their students, of course, now as they got older, they kept teaching the work. And so I feel like part of how I've been able to be a self-employed artist is these relationships. And because because we tended them as well. And so people that I remember visiting when I was visiting a class and they were students later hire me and then I come in and I get a residency, you know, it's like these things just circle, they circle. Mm. And I'm aware of a couple of things. One, ultimately, I feel like my great desire, passion, joy and privilege is to offer my work in service of celebrating you know, naming and participating in African-American performance traditions and then using that as ways to bring people from lots of different backgrounds together for experiences that we shape and experience and talk about together. So the relationships, the having it studied, the creating the pieces together, even audience members that maybe used to live here, I've run into in other cities. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So the relationships are essential in every way. And it is my deep need and also desire to, an intention to connect. So I love the privilege of being able to connect through the work uh, and through these relationships. Yeah. Yeah, that was kind of the feeling that I had last night, just thinking about wh- the way you were describing relationships. Is like, I really need to put more intention into... I mean, I feel like I'm part of an art community here, but I don't know that it feels like a family necessarily. And I, I was trying to think of like, if there's like a core group of artists that I know that we're kind of like all committed to supporting each other and would even like, I could imagine like meeting regularly and bouncing ideas and sharing work or something. I mean, it just sounds so fulfilling to me. And I just, I was like, man, I need to start trying to foster something like that. And I'd wonder if other people are doing that or are we all kind of like doing our own thing and kind of seeing each other at, at openings, maybe. I don't know. Like, I just, I, I could feel that desire in me to put more intention towards something like that or trying to maybe facilitate helping other people do that, you know? Yeah, I think when I was coming up artistically or growing up artistically in the 90s here, the way that funding worked and the kinds of institutions that we had access to valued that. 
and made space for it and paid for the senior artists like Lori to be able to position themselves for us in that way. And so I think that it does require more intention now because there's not as much infrastructure support or spaces even Mm -hmm. for that to happen in. I think because when I was coming up, that was something that was more part of life kind of. And, you know, you still had to commit to it and get in there and do the work and show up and all of that and value it. But there was a time I remember when I also still had to be intentional about that because it was almost like we got spoiled. We were, this was a hub at Austin, Texas, and people were coming from all over the country and doing amazing things here. Like Eric N used to come here all the time and Grisha Coleman and so many amazing national artists. And we just had access to them. And it was, you know, because of people or institutions like Frontier High Park Theater, um, women in their work, you know, uh, gallery, so many places. Um, the rude mechs were born out of all of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so there were these ways that we were taught, like that's part of how we were trained, right? And then it seemed like everybody just kind of moved. And it really broke my heart for a while. I didn't know how to be in community in the same way because we were so dispersed and there Mm. wasn't an easy way for us to figure out how to get in the room together. And then I realized, oh, I have to nurture this. I have to figure out how to show up for this and say yes, you know, even when I don't understand how I'm going to pay to be there or whatever you know what I mean so I think it requires even more intention now and I think the podcasts are a great way that people I'm a big podcast person Mm. you know and I think it's a great way that we find each other because I know so many times when I listen to podcasts I get excited and then I start following those artists and then when I can I go to their shows or I get on their mailing list or whatever so it's like how do we do that in this time Hmm. And I think it might look a little different, but I think this is definitely a good way. Yeah, yeah. Are there types of advice that you find are really useful to other artists that you've given or Mm -hmm. kind of things that you've figured out that you might want to share? I have very much intentionally sought out tools to be more financially stable and well because as a self-employed artists for so long like it was really financially dicey it was very difficult and if I had had more business skills and more financial like if I had been more financially literate I don't think it would have been as hard because I did always make money but the money came in seasons the money came like a slinky Mm -hmm. often I didn't know when the money was coming or when the next gig was going to be and there was so much stress yeah. and struggle. Yeah, you were talking about that last night, how your relationship with money has changed quite a bit over yeah, time. over time. And, and I really worked on that, and I really sought skills and, and sought out you know advice and help to be able to understand what to do to position myself differently. And so one of the things 
that I'm committed to now and I'm really excited about is having those conversations with artists now. I feel, especially because the funding landscape is different now. Like, you know, there are fewer things for independent artists to apply for. There are different ways that artists can get support and visibility and be seen, you know. And so I feel that being financially financially literate, understanding how to see yourself and set yourself up like a small business. So understanding how to do taxes, making sure you get legal advice that is sound and good and specific to whatever your art is, creating retirement plans, considering home ownership or savings, things like that. Like, how do we set ourselves up for long-term sustainable success as opposed to struggling and living small and suffering? I think it's really important. And that only makes your work grow. You know, that only helps you to be able to do your true vision as opposed to putting things off that you can't afford to do or that you don't have the funding for or, you know, that you're continuing to seek support for and it gives you more energy. So there are, you know, Austin has lots of resources. So I would encourage people to think really creatively, financially, uh, and artistically and in terms of how like what even wealth is you know so I think if we only think of wealth as money we'll always be poor because rich people can be terribly unhappy <laughs> yeah money doesn't guarantee you know and then so then if you're really unhappy then you're still living small so it's like thinking for me thinking of wealth as health, time, spirit, relationships, community, creativity, and money, and there's probably others that I could put in that category, is essential. And so how do I grow in each area? What do I need to do to be more physically healthy? Which only awakens energy. It aligns, helps you to align with creativity. It helps you to open and be a better vehicle and vessel for what it is that you want to do and what might want to be done through you that you haven't even imagined mm. yet. Um, how do you create time for that? You know, how do you daydream? How do you allow what you haven't thought about to be thought to you? You know, yeah. so time and then research relationships are always essential to me and, you know, intimate relationships, family, community, it could be chosen family, artistic relationships, presenting relationships, you know, all of that. And and then the literal skills of building a business. And and a big one, I think, is for all of us is where the heck are we going to live? You know, how do we? Yeah, do that we, we can afford. That we can afford <laughs> these days. So how can we be creative? Um, with my last project, which was called Dat Black Mermaid Man Lady, and it had a lot of different components to it. There was a show that was performed that premiered in August no, in June at Pillsbury House Theater. There was a performance installation uh, where I collaborated with my daughter and an artist named Walter Katundu, who's a MacArthur Fellow. <laughs> and so that was just like, and he's also art, art family. So that was just like fun and joy. And we did that at Algo here in Austin in August. The, I created an Oracle deck. Um, I created a Blessing deck. 
And I created this thing that I called the home project. And the home project came out of this that we're talking to, mm. this desire to encourage artists to think expansively about creating a sustainable, thriving, wealthy life, you know, and, and again, wealth being not just money, but, you know, how we're living. And so Minneapolis is also one of my homes. So I've been going there and working there steadily since probably 94. Ironically, through someone that this amazing, awesome Minneapolis artist warrior, I don't know, world changer named Eleanor Savage, who came here to Austin because she was creating a documentary, I think it may have been audio, but a a documentary about lesbians in the South. So she's originally Mm. from Georgia. So we met here in Austin, and she ended up bringing me to Minneapolis, and then I just have been going ever since. I just didn't move there because it's too cold for too long. (laughs) But uh, in Minneapolis, a dear art family friend who is a poet and a housing rights activist who also works at Pillsbury House Theater and lives down the street from the theater in a neighborhood called Powderhorn Park. Her name is Molly Van Avery. Molly served as the project coordinator for the home project in Minneapolis, and she got the land trust to come aboard as a partner in the Powderhorn Park Neighborhood Association. And so what we did was we got six emerging artists of color. There was intergenerational, different mediums and backgrounds, and the land trust created a curriculum for the cohort that walked them through the process of preparing to get on the road to get a home, both through the land trust and through traditional mortgage routes. And one of the artists out of that cohort decided that she didn't want to do either of those. What she really wanted to do was more communal living. So she went on and got some other training and is looking at creating a collective And so what we found was that, you know, a lot of the artists, because we haven't had a lot of these conversations about financial literacy and ourselves as small businesses, et cetera, et cetera, and home buying, we don't think we can buy a home, most of us. So we, most people were at stage one. (laughs) So it was more like, okay, I'm going to check my credit score. You know what I mean? So no one finished our time together and bought a house, but everyone got a lot of information and then can make decisions about what they might do and what they want um, so that at least they could consider it if they want to. And Molly, who was our project coordinator, who is a poet, got her house through the land trust. No money down. They gave her $50,000 to fix the house up and she's been in there for eight years. Wow, that's great. Yeah. Um, What you were saying a little back a little ways reminded me of, it's kind of like the conundrum that a lot of artists have, I think. Oh, do I have my day job and do my art on the side? And I think you said something last night where you just felt like it got to a point, like a tipping point where you were like, "I, I need more space to like, inhabit this life and to kind of grow that must have been a scary moment right i mean and i don't know what your relationship with money was right at that exact moment but i mean there's no judgment about whether someone wants to have a job or they want to quit and pursue their art full-time i mean everyone does it the way they want but it's seems like that is kind of like the two sides of it a lot of times that people are struggling with yeah absolutely yeah i had actually about four jobs and i i mean it was all 
work that I loved. It was community organizing. I started off here in Austin working for the Austin Travis County Health Department in the STD clinic. Mm -hmm. I managed syphilis cases. And then I ended up being with the first wave of HIV activists, uh, testers, street outreach workers, early intervention specialists. Mm -hmm. And I later worked for Planned Parenthood in Austin. I directed a radio show called Wrap It Up. It was on KZI (laughs) and it was hosted by teens. And it was a call-in show for teens to talk about um, safer sex and other issues that were pressing for teens. And, um, yeah, the the teens that ran that show uh, were amazing and are doing great things still here in Austin. One of them, his name is The Genius. He still has a show on KZI uh, and is doing other work that's really important. But anyway... Um, so yeah, it's not like you were doing some meaningless desk job. Yeah, right? <laughs> I really loved the work. You know, I really loved it. And, and I had a lot of jobs just because I actually loved all of it. And they kind of bled into each other. But also, um, I needed more money because I had started the theater company. And because I didn't have any infrastructure and didn't really know what I was doing, I paid for a lot of stuff myself. Mm, So we women in their work actually helped us to get our first booking out of town booking through the National Performance Network. And that relationship with the National Performance Network serves me to this day. So I have been, even as an independent artist, I've received a lot of commissions and a lot of work through other presenters in that network. But Chris Cowden from Women and Their mm-hmm. Work just showed up for us and just really helped us. We got our first out-of-town booking you know, because of her help. But I produced our first show. It was called the Root Women Theater Company. And I produced our first show at the old Vortex Theater. So Bonnie had a space over on Ben White. It used to be a theater, like a movie theater with Mm -hmm. three movie things in there. And she um, had a deal with the city. It was probably one of those like dollar a month things. And she went in there and fixed it up. And I remember that she also had like the first real cool like coffee shop gathering spot up in there. And so we had our first show in in that space at the old Vortex Theater. And it was called Love Rituals and Rage. And it was the Root Women Theater Company. And so I paid for that. And so I ended up making a lot of debt for myself, but I also needed a lot of money. And so that was one reason why I just was like, I don't understand how to get grant. I don't even, I probably didn't even know what a grant was, but I knew I needed for myself to make this work. And I had these awesome collaborators and Bonnie support and all that. And we did really well. We had great audiences. It was so much fun. Michelle Parkerson, who's a like icon, black lesbian Really, people know her as a filmmaker, but she's a, a amazing theater director as well. She directed the show. She came and directed the show. And then she said to me, you know, you really need to direct your own work. So I directed the work after that. <laughs> yeah. But um, really, Sanja and I, Sanja Parks ended up being my longtime uh, collaborator, both with Ruth Women and still to this day, we work together. But Sanja and I, it was really more a collaboration. I wouldn't call it me directing. Saying all that to say it got to a point where by around 98, I knew that I was not going to grow artistically and do things the way I had been doing them. I knew that art was the way that I 
could feel that I was being of the most service. Because by that time, I had been out of like I had toured and I had returned places and had conversations with people. And I understood that the work, you know, really wasn't about me. It was about like these connections and again, relationships and telling these stories and making space for other people to tell and feel their own stories. And so I was deeply committed to living as an artist and growing so that I could do that better. And I just quit. I just quit all those jobs and I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I can't do that anymore. Mm. And I was just so blessed. I like, again, relationships over and over and over. And just like, I don't know, I feel like the ancestors look out for me and I believe in angels. (laughs) But Vicki Boone, who at the time was artistic director at Frontier at Hyde Park Theater, had encouraged me to write a grant with her for a theater communications group playwright residency. So they don't do this anymore, unfortunately. But at the time, TCG, our theater communication group, would give a playwright $20,000 to be in residence with a theater company that they had a relationship with. Mm. And at the end, the idea was that you would write something new, you'd be supported and be a part of that theater community actively doing stuff. And at the end, you'd have your work produced. And immediately after I quit, we found out we got that. I do not know what I would have done. Like, I have no idea. But it was like Vicky had, <laughs> it was Vicky's vision and faith and support of me. And then the gods. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. and then. I don't know, people may not know this, but um, there was a woman, she's still wonderfully alive, named Genevieve Vaughn. Genevieve Vaughn wrote a book called The Gift-Giving Economy. She's written other books too. But Genevieve is a wealthy woman that believes that wealthy people should give their wealth away. And uh, and of course, not to the point that it hurts you, you know. But Genevieve used to own the Peace Building, which is now La Pena, um, because Cynthia Pettis bought the building from Genevieve and La Pena, which is um, an arts organization. Mm -hmm. Cynthia runs that out of there. But the Peace Building used to be on Congress and Second, and all the amazing arts organizations like the Farm Workers Union. I mean, just everything was up in there. I can't even think now. Algo was in there. American Friends Service Committee, like all these awesome organizers had offices in there and for either nothing or very little. And they were gathering places. And so you could go there and hear these amazing talks from people all over the world that were doing important, you know, activist work together. So Genevieve owned the Peace Building. She owned Uh, Alma de Mujer, which she later gifted to the Indigenous Women's Network. So Alma is still doing really well and doing important work. Um, She used to own, I can't think of the name of it, but in South Austin, she owned a, uh, it was a building where basically women could go and learn how to have and run their own radio shows, how to use film and documentaries as a and you know so they did that kind of work there and she had another retreat center in uh can't think of the name of it stonehaven it may have been called in san marcus Mm. where like she let us for no charge do retreats out there and we would be fed and we could you know 
gather out there and do work together and replenish and people all over the world use that space. Um, so she doesn't do all of that anymore, but Genevieve had a home in, I think it was Kyle. Kyle is south of yeah. Austin. Yeah. So she had a home in Kyle and adjacent to her home, she had this little cottage and she let me stay there for a chunk of time. And that's where I wrote the piece. The piece was called Conflama. That's where I wrote Conflama which was my TCG Frontier at Hyde Park Theater piece. Mm -hmm. And so I got to go there and be in this residency thanks to Genevieve's generosity and write this piece that was a life-changing piece for me to circle it back. So Lori Carlos directed the piece at Frontera. Uh, Zell Miller III was in it. Uh, Florinda Bryant was in it. Ana Perea, who is an Austinite but moved to New York. She was in it. Uh, Omi was the dramaturg. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there's an, oh, Sanja was in it. Florinda Bryant, just to celebrate and honor Lori's life and legacy, because Lori died a couple of years ago, Florinda Bryant just directed it. And so that show um, just had another life with yeah. a whole nother group of people. So all these circles and circles and circles. But basically, having that TCG residency helped me to launch myself in a way that wasn't hurting me <laughs> yeah. as a self-employed artist. And then I, I feel that if I had had more skills, I would not have had to struggle. Because looking back, I could have bought a house. Like there were all these things I could have done, you know, and could have leveraged to create more financial stability for myself if I had thought it was possible. Mm. Like it actually was possible, but I didn't think of it because yeah. I didn't, wasn't. You had limiting beliefs. I had so limiting yeah. beliefs. <laughs> I didn't understand money. It was all just like I didn't manage it, managed me. And so I think for artists now, one, I just really want to encourage people to be self-determining about that stuff, you know, and figure it out and learn and grow and don't be alone with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe you could talk about the idea you mentioned last night about your life challenge mm. and how that kind of directs what you do. Yeah, one of the ways that I feel I have been able to not just survive, but to thrive uh, as an artist is that early on, because of how I was trained bec uh, artistically, because of the community organizing work, because of the particulars of my family history and background, I asked myself, what is the life challenge that I am living with that if I could shift it, it would shift everything for me. And I must say, too, um, I had cancer in 2005. I lived mm. here in Austin at that time, and I was actually artistic director at Algo at that time. Oh, yeah. Uh huh. And, and when I was diagnosed, Daniel Alexander Jones and Walter Katundu had a show that was going to open soon at some point, like right after I was diagnosed. And my daughter, Sonia Perryman, who, so me and Walter just worked together and Sonia on the show that just Algol just right. presented. But back then in 2005, Sonia came into town and she worked with them. I think she was probably like a production assistant or something. Mm -hmm. But anyway, just all the beautiful circles. But um, so I've been cancer free since then. I had surgery and I've been cancer free. And 
after surgery, one of the questions that I asked myself was if I, cause I really, really, it made me really, really committed to living because hmm. I was afraid I was going to die. And all of the things that had felt so big felt trivial to me after that. And so my question was, what do I believe spirituality is and how can I live? And my answer to myself around spirituality was I felt that what was important is the evidence of spirituality, which I identify as joy. And I think to be truly joyful means that you're also loving and you're kind, you're present and, you know, you're thoughtful, right? And so I was like, well, how the heck am I going to be joyful? (laughs) You know, because it's hard to be loving and kind and thoughtful and joyful and all that when you're worrying about money and, you know, all that stuff. So (laughs) it was a big question, you know. And so that sent me down this really, they call it the dark night of the soul. Like, I feel Mm -hmm. like I really went in there to examine this question. Like, how can I live joy. And the thing that came up for me was, well, what's in the way of that? Mm. And so then this idea of what is my biggest life challenge came to surface because, you know, I have patterns, right? Like we all do, like patterns of behavior, patterns of when I'm triggered, and then I, you know, I'm not living my best patterns. And I identified for myself a life challenge, which was around knowing that I would be loved and that I'd have what I need. <laughs> so, of mm-hmm. course, money was a part of yeah, yeah. all of that. And so I just started just doing all this work, you know, mm. um, work of examination, self-examination, self-exploration, spiritual exploration, trying to work to have my body support me better. So not putting things that are toxic in myself and, you know, learning how to eat differently, like all of that came out of there. And, and what I did, and I think I had always been doing this, but what I started doing it more intentionally was writing through all of that. So early on, I realized, well, if I am going to be joyful, uh, you know, and truly have this be the evidence of my spirituality, then I can't be holding resentments against, against my mother. So it's like, how do I practice forgiveness? And so the piece Conflama was actually the piece that I went inside of. And I had actually written that earlier. But I, you know, it's like, in retrospect, I could see that I had been on that journey. So um, the next piece that I wrote was called Delta Dandy. And it was kind of a deeper exploration of this family history thing, you know? Yeah, so for me, I kind of slowly but surely wrote my way free. Uh, and, I, you know, it's still a process. I think it's life, yeah, you know, yeah. so I'll always be doing it. But in workshops, it's the first question that I always ask everybody. Like I offer it as an entry to getting inside of the work that might most help us free ourselves and do the work that we most want to do. So not that we spend all of our lives writing our pain stories, because that actually isn't what I mean at all, but that we go in and examine and look at and unearth and remove and release the things that are in, that are in the way of us um, being a clear vessel mm. and then make work 
that helps you do that, whether you share it or not, and then make work from that place of more clearness. Yeah. And the joy comes from... The joy comes... For me, the joy is a life practice. So it comes from tending all those areas to me that are the wealth. So the relationships, the spirit, the health, the time, the creativity, the money, the treasuring of my ancestry, you know, all of that. And, and you know, like sometimes you're um, really got a lot of one and not very much of another, you know, but the tending to that is the joyful life for me. So for you, writing was your the vehicle for or is to explore yourself and these issues. I, yes. just, I guess it could that could manifest itself in different ways with different people. Absolutely, in different mediums, different yeah. forms. Yeah. yeah. It seems like that is related to finding oneself or being fully yourself. Do you have any thoughts about that in particular? I mean, it's related, but maybe there's something else there you could share. Yeah, I think it is the work of that. And then it's also... I think really, really necessary and important in these times when we need to not only find ourselves, but we need to find a way to each other. And so it's really hard to show up fully for others if you haven't shown up for yourself. It's really hard to have the hard conversations that we need to have right now so that we can move Mm. together collectively so that we can tend our relationships if we haven't done that for ourselves. I think it's really hard to make courageous choices as artists if we haven't done that work because our fear and the things that we are hiding from inside of us will govern us and it will never be the brave choice. You know, it will never be the free thing. It will never be all that we are capable of you know, if we don't do that. And I think it's hard to hold on to our wealth if we haven't done that because we won't, on some level, believe that we deserve it. Yeah, that we're enough. Yeah, that we're enough. So I think it's the life work, you know, and I think artists have the unique ability and task and potential to present life, you know, Um, for others, for all of us to find ourselves in. Yeah, that makes me think of a question that I had just around, like, what do you see the role of an artist being in society? Yeah, I think artists, and this is just my opinion, so of course everybody has their own belief systems and around these things, but I believe that artists in our highest, greatest capacity when we're working at our fullest best selves and abilities are the ones that can present name and open spaces for humanity to see itself in and to be itself more fully. And I think that it's the work of the artist needs to be incorporated more intentionally, therefore, in everything, in politics, in neighborhood work in, you know, in in just everything, because I think we need the artist's skills so that we stay in our humanity and imagination more gracefully. And I look to, you know, I think in earth-based traditions, traditionally all over the world, the artist was that, you know, and had a place, 
you know, in how things function, the storytellers, the song makers, the weavers, you know, I think cooking is an art, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think it's really important that we return to that because we've got to gather and hold kind, graceful space for each other and our hard, hard truths. What about love? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think love is the only point. Yeah. <laughs> nothing else really matters. But I think we struggle and strive and suffer to get to love because <laughs> we're human. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think love is the whole point. I think it's also the way. I think a lot of activists are returning to love because that's about all we can do right now. <laughs> yeah. It's such a horrific, insane and cruel time that we're in. Um, but also a lot of great things are happening too. But yeah, I think love is the only, the only thing that really, really, really ultimately matters. And I think art can serve in making space for more love. Mm-hmm. Could you speak about prayer and ritual a little bit? Cause you did, you know, at the talk last night, you did a prayer at the beginning to give voice to ancestors. And I just, I really appreciated that. And I thought, yeah, there are a lot of people that went through a lot for us to be all be here. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was really nice to pay some respect to them. But yeah, I think you also mentioned that, well, you say your work is like prayer mm-hmm. or is prayer. And I just wonder how, what kind of daily practices you have around prayer and rituals mm-hmm. or something that like keep you grounded or focused. Yeah, I try to always in, in gatherings, if I'm speaking, or being featured or whatever to hold space for the naming of the ancestors as I have been taught. So Raul Salinas, who's the founder of Resistencia Bookstore and Red Salmon Arts here in Austin, who transitioned a number of years ago, I saw him do that every single gathering. And I know that it had a deep instructive impact on me. Marcia Ann Gomez, who used to run Alma de Mujer, Um, who's also transitioned, um, was a visual artist that prayer in her work and in how she conducted gatherings was also very instructive for me. My family, you know, I feel like even though because we were people who migrated, you know, my mom chose not to go to church uh, until she was older. And she could do that because she wasn't around her home people. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But I feel like prayer was in everything. And so just knowing how the recounting of stories, when I look back and think about it, they were prayers. You know, they were, I didn't so much see my mom do that, but my great aunts and, you know, uncles would do that. Like just repeating these things, repeating, you know, and there was something in the repetition and in the stories themselves where what they were really doing was telling me who I was from and who I was. And they were also in it was an articulation of a longing, you know, for people that had passed for home that they could not go back to, you know, home wouldn't be home in the same way anymore. And so I, I feel like stories can be prayer, you know, can activate and open can conjure and heal. And so in my writing, there's always prayer structured somewhere in the story. 
And the, it might be a, a series of repetitions, uh, like my family of people naming people or naming things that were, or it might be a literal prayer or, you know, whatever, but it's always structured in there. And so in gatherings, like the people that taught me, I think it's important because all of us, you know, have experienced loss, you know, all of us, you know, are here in some capacity because somebody helped us, you know, and so I think I want to set that tone and open and have us step into that feeling space as where we start. And so that's what that was for me. And gratitude. Oh, it's so important. <laughs> it's so yeah. important. It shifts everything. Yeah, I've been really trying to, every morning, just spend a few minutes in letting that gratitude well up inside of me and just kind of thinking about all the blessings I have. Yeah. It's really helpful. It's so helpful. And I think it makes us more tender and open towards each other. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. What is the most important thing that you could imagine imparting to someone that you would leave them with to go Mm -hmm. on and live their life? Mm -hmm. I think for me, it would just simply be that I love them Mm -hmm. and that I'm proud of them. You know, I have a daughter and I've also lost parents. Uh, I had six parents because of divorces and stuff. And so three of them are alive and three of them have passed. And what I knew with the ones that passed was that they loved me. Mm. And that's been really important. And interestingly enough, part of what keeps them so alive with me, because I actually feel like I'm still learning from them Mm. in ways that I couldn't when they were here, but I can now because I'm not fighting them because they're (laughs) they're not in flesh. Stories. They left me stories. They left me lots and lots of stories and lots of experiences. But the thing that, only thing that really mattered is that I knew that they loved me. So that's what I would say. Yeah. So maybe we could just talk for one second about Algo because I really want everyone to know about them. And here's a card that they gave me last night. Algo celebrates and nurtures vibrant queer people of color communities in Texas and beyond. We do this through cultural arts, wellness, and social social justice programming by supporting artists and artistic expression within our diverse communities, promoting health within a wellness model, and mobilizing and building coalitions among groups marginalized by race, ethnicity, gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, sexual identity, in order to enact change. Can you just speak for a minute about Algo? Because I really think everyone needs to know about them and needs to support them if they can. Absolutely. Algo has been around for, I feel like, maybe 33 years, more or less, right here in East Austin on Tillery. And Algo originally was the Austin Austin Latino, Latina, Lesbian, Gay Organization. And so it was a Latinx organization originally, LGBTQ organization, that originally was very social. So they were like, barbecues and parties, uh, Clemencia Zapata, uh, Saul, so many, so many movers and shakers in Austin. Um, now back in the day were just like the people that were the muscle behind Algo. And you can go on the website and get the actual names and history. Um, cause I won't be able to do justice to that here, but I encountered Algo when I moved here in 89 because I was looking for queer people of color. 
And I'll go ahead and office in the old Peace Building. And at the time, Maria Limon was the executive director. And so when I went there, um, Maria just took me in, even though it's a Latinx organization and I'm African-American, Maria just took me in and I ended up at the parties and eventually ended up volunteering. Algo moved from more of a social focus to creating itself as an organization that was responding to HIV and AIDS in the community. And so it changed or created an arm called Informacita. And so when I was working at the health department, I collaborated a lot with Informicida and we did street outreach and testing and early intervention and education around HIV and AIDS in the community. So Algo shifted its focus in response to what was needed in the community at that time and made huge impact and offered uh, social services and other kinds of support um, and did something annually called Baile, which they were are famous for. Um, it's a Valentine's Day party, basically. They're not doing it now, but for many, many years, Baile was a huge gathering opportunity. Um, food, dancing, gathering, laughing, having fun. And Algo um, has always committed itself to having artists in leadership and um, as a part of determining how to offer its services, you know, and what to offer. And so the arts have always been a part of things. So at some point, Informacita shifted back to Algo and kind of refocused its mission again, based on what was showing itself as needed in the community and is no longer a Latinx only organization, but is a queer people of color organization. And so Myself, I've been on the board in the past. I've been, I was artistic director of the cultural arts programming at one point, and I've been artist in residence many, many, many times. And I've been a long term community member of Algo and have benefited greatly from it. And met you last night um, yeah. at a talk that I was giving at Algo, which was really wonderful because so many of the old Algo folks like myself and then lots of the newer folk and then some people that had never been there like yourself were there and that's just what Algo is. It's a place for us to gather. It offers space for us to gather to consider the arts as a galvanizing force and to be in serious community collectively around making the change that is needed for us to thrive and survive and to care for each other. Yeah. Really important work. Yeah. Where would you like people to connect or learn more about you? For people that are interested in Algo, it's allgo.org. Um, I encourage you to donate, um, to go there and see what they're doing and donate and sign up for the mailing list and go to. They always have, you know, talks, artist talks, um, exhibits, performances, also movie screenings intimate conversations and workshops and then things that have to do with um, Texas statewide policy mm -hmm. kind of work. So join the mailing list, drop by, donate, and that's at algo, A-L-L-G-O dot org. And then my website is SharonBridgeforth.com. And there's no E in Bridgeforth, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but SharonBridgeforth.com. That's okay. where I'm at. Is there anything else you'd like to leave anyone that might be listening with? I'm just grateful to be in conversation. Um, grateful 
that these kinds of um, ways of accessing each other exist. Um, so to anyone that's listening, thank you. For all of us that are doing our work in the very best way we can, you know, we're all just trying and, you know, it's, it's a messy process, this thing life. Yeah. And so thank you to everyone for trying. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Thank you everyone. And thank you to Sharon for coming over here and spending some time with me and sharing your thoughts and your experiences. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. Those were great questions. Thanks for listening. One more thing before you go. If this episode or any other I've produced have helped you or added value to your life, please support the podcast so it can continue and grow. Just go to austinarttalk.com forward slash support. There you can find a link to my Patreon page and there is also a PayPal option and an Amazon affiliate link. I couldn't keep doing this without your help. All the best to you and take care. Thank you.